0: I'm Kay Firth-Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. and I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI, and this is In AI We Trust. Hello, and welcome back to In AI We Trust. Today, we are so pleased to be joined by Ross Anderson, staff writer at The Atlantic. Prior to joining The Atlantic in 2015, he was deputy editor of the Aon Magazine and before that, science editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. He is known for his award-winning feature essays, which straddle philosophy, technology, science, history, and the arts. Ross, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: So happy to be here. It's so good to see you again, Miriam.
0: So great to see you and welcome you to 1229.
1: Mm,
0: spot. It's a good spot. So we just described a wide array of really interesting topics that you cover. Tell us, when did AI join that mix of topics you're interested in? What drew you and how does it differ from other topics that you're focused on?
1: Yeah, wow. What a good and expansive question. I first covered AI as a writer back in 2011 when I was at Aeon Magazine, and I wrote a very long profile of a philosopher who was then somewhat obscure named Nick Bostrom, and I was fascinated by his work partly because of his simulation theory and a the piece was really about you know the the possibility that humans could go extinct and again that was at the time an even more exotic idea than it is now and I mean he had what today we would call Alignment researchers, he had like three or four of them at the time working for them. So I went to Oxford and spent, I think like a week with them, palling around with Nick, walking sort of the cobblestone streets and talking to his various researchers about how to develop AI safely. And this was, God, this was like, I don't even think ImageNet had been launched yet, but there were rumblings that machine learning was kind of on the make and that AI was about to take this, this leap forward that the AI winter was sort of coming to a close and I found myself fascinated by it. I really am drawn to subjects that really sit at the at the kind of intersection of philosophy and technology in particular. And this was a clear, clear example of that. And also just stuff that has a genuine potential to be world-changing. I mean, I think any journalist or writer is interested in stuff that changes the world, but things that at least potentially could be really transformative in AI seem to fit that category.
0: Fair enough. That certainly is a great introduction to AI and the perils. I'd be curious to hear if that ever led to opportunities and and innovations. But before we dig into that, I have to ask you about your coverage of history because, as you know, as a history major, it's something I'm constantly reflecting on as we think about AI and its potential impact. So I'm curious to hear your thought on how you expect AI is going to fit into history. How will it impact our society and our humanity? I know you've also given some thought to how it will affect our morality. Hmm. So would love to hear and benefit from your thinking on how it's going to have a key role in our history.
1: Yeah. Wow. Another expansive question. These are great. Yeah. Look, I think at the Atlantic, I mean, one reason that I was really delighted to join the magazine was there is such an emphasis on a historical perspective. and whenever we take on a subject, I think there's a real encouragement from editorial leadership going all the way up to take a really deep kind of dive into both the history of the subject and then also how it fits into, you know, larger historical questions. And we have jokes about that, you know, like I'm always fond of kind of the second section drop cap that like starts with the big bang, you know? <laughs> um, we call that the drop cap of debt, like when you take people all the way back. And as far as how, AI is going to affect history, certainly one area that I expect AI to have profound implications is political history, or I guess our political future. And I'm not one of these people who is super terrified that you know, deep fakes are gonna ruin the next election. I've been really encouraged by the kind of public suspicion sort of of images so far, and I think, like the Pope coat, I think is a really brilliant example of this. The Pope coat, at least to my knowledge, is, and this is this really <laughs> kind of amazing image of the Pope in a Balenciaga parka, and it seems to me to be the the one that got like the widest purchase so far of any of the images that have been created by Dolly or Midjourney or whatever, where it actually fooled people. But the reason that it fooled people is because it wasn't about a matter of political consequence. And so it fooled me, I'll admit, like when I first saw it kind of in my Twitter feed, I just sort of giggled and thought, oh, how amazing, you know, like the Pope's in some new trip (laughs) and then kept scrolling right along. But for instance, like the really hyper-realistic photos of Donald Trump being arrested, no one really believed those. And that's because when you have something of like extreme political consequence, people do drill down, right, very seriously and be like, wait a minute, is that real? They look for kind of third party independence. Now, are you gonna fool some people with some of this stuff? Yes. But I don't think personally that it's enough to you know, throw an election or certainly our next election. We'll see how good the technology gets. However, I am worried about how AI will affect political history in terms of inequality, in terms of rapid changes to the labor market. I know you've covered this on this excellent podcast previously, but it seems as these tools get more powerful, I'm using them every day. I find them enormously useful. The thought occurs to me as a sort of, you know, I guess what uh, I group myself in with kind of the large, mass of white collar knowledge workers, if that's a meaningful category. And I don't know, I think we're all asking ourselves how much longer until this can do my job, you know, and I, I don't, I don't think it can do my job now. and I'm, I'm grateful for that, but it can certainly do dimensions of my job and make dimensions of my job easier. You know, I remember being so struck during the social media revolution when Instagram was bought by Facebook Mm -hmm. for something like $3 billion. I forget the exact number. And at the time they had like 12 employees. And so I think as these AI tools become more powerful, I think you start to see that trend. It's gonna go that way, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're gonna have very few people with highly technical skills, being able to create large amounts of money without much labor. Mm -hmm. And that in the absence of a pretty radical change in our political economy, is going to lead to lots of people maybe not having enough money or employment, but also just a lack of meaning in their life. And and we have an example of this, right, with deindustrialization, where slowly but surely, globalization sort of strips these manufacturing jobs out of certainly the Rust Belt, but all kinds of places in the United States. And it leads to profound dissatisfaction, profound lack of meaning, extreme reactionary politics, xenophobic politics, that we've experienced in our national life the last 10 years. And if that's even broader with AI and if it's affecting people who are really already higher on that kind of pyramid of sort of status and wealth, I just wonder what that looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, what what does our culture look like? What does our political culture look like in the wake of that?
0: No, I had a feeling you would have a really Mm thought-provoking answer. So thank you for sharing that. It is interesting to imagine, does it take away someone's agency does it take away their meaning mm-hmm. or can it realize this promise that we talk about where it frees them up to be more creative to be more connected mm-hmm. you mentioned you're using ai daily i wonder if there's any of those uses you want to share and and i wonder yeah. if those are good indications of of some of the ways that it creates an efficiency it creates you know i think of the ai future when i try to imagine it in the same way that our iPhone has changed our world and created a seamlessness. Mm. Now, granted, you have to be able to afford it and that's a huge mm. but, and there are numerous implications beyond you know, just that huge computer capacity within your pocket. But do you think it could have the opposite effect where it creates more agency, more community opportunities, more human interaction capability?
1: Yeah, look, I regret in weighing in ponderously about the tides of history that I'm coming across like a doomer because I'm not one. Mm-hmm. Like I, I do use these tools every day. I love GPT. I mm-hmm. don't mind saying so. You asked for an example of how I use it. A lot of times as a research assistant and mm-hmm. you have to be careful on how you do mm-hmm. that, right? Because of the hallucination problem. And so I tend to use it at the conceptual level. Mm-hmm. For instance, I find myself working on a story for next year that has something to do with glaciers in Antarctica. And I had a lot of calls early this week, set up with some of the prominent Antarctic glaciologists in the world and needed to prepare for those calls. And ChatGPT, you know, of course, this is no substitute for digging around in the literature. And of course I'm doing that as well. And we'll do that, especially after you talk to these people, but just getting like anchored in the field, Mm having a dialogue with chat gpt about just like okay first of all give me like the bird's eye view of this field and the way that it does it in bullets you know and it's like here's how the glaciers form here's how long they've been there here's this here's that and then you can kind of pin down on each one and ask it to expand on stuff you're curious about now, again, if you ask it really specific questions, it gives you wrong answers, you know, often. And so you cannot use it just yet. That's why I'm always asking these guys when I talk to them, when we're going to get Wikipedia level accuracy mm-hmm. on chat, GBT, because I think even that would just be such a game changer, yeah. but yeah, no, I could imagine many different ways for individuals, these products and just this whole vein of development, not even LLMs, which we can get into, but you know. When you stack all kinds of modeling on top of LMs, you know, like something like a world model that understands both language, but also the space in those room that we're sitting in. I think that could be so awesome and lead to so many fun things the way the smartphone did, maybe even more dramatically. And I'm excited about those possibilities. I just wonder at the societal level, what else that's going to mean?
0: Yeah. What else it's going to mean and what measures we need to take immediately Mm. to make sure that it happens in a way that is safe and inclusive Mm. and hopefully reduces the opportunity gap instead of the other alternative.
1: That's well said. If we had like a Norwegian or just like a Scandinavian kind of social safety net in Mm -hmm. place now, I think I would be a lot less worried. About this technology, yeah. you know, I just worry about a situation where it's a little too late and the tectonic plates have already moved, and you know, we're all sitting around. There's, you know, a revolution at the doors here in mm-hmm. DC. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, fair questions, and glad you're asking them. Glad you're bringing them to our attention. So speaking of big questions and interesting discussions, you have a lot of those interesting discussions. You interview a lot of interesting people, and we've seen how some of the tech play an outsized role right now in our society, both in our future, but today in the technologies we're using in establishing the landscape that we're operating in. So one of those very interesting interviews you conducted was with Sam Altman. Someone who we know has had such a huge impact on our world, both through his work at OpenAI, but also as an international diplomat of sorts, going around the world talking about what it is that he's working on, what regulations should look like, and so forth. So, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what is Big Tech's role currently in steering AI. And I'd also love to hear how that interview because I know it was an extended process. Yeah. How has that shaped your thinking about the place that we're in now? And in addition to the recent shakeup at OpenAI, and and I guess it's a reshake back to, <laughs> in some ways, original status. So again, I know this is a big question, but given all of the conversations you're having and particularly with one of the current thought leaders, I'd love to hear how that shapes your perspective and what we can learn from it.
1: Yeah, well, look, I found myself tremendously charmed by Sam. He's really smart and intelligent. And to my view, Ernest, I joined him for part of his international tour, really part of the East Asian swing, which is really interesting experience. I mean, in places like Singapore and Seoul, he really was a rock star. You know, it's funny, there's been some survey data on this that the East Asian countries are like much more techno optimist than the West is right now. And there's a variety of theories about why that might be. One of them is just that, for instance, if you were born in 1970 in China, technology, at least in part, has delivered one of the great miracles of world history in the space of your lifetime, you know, like stood up 50 megalopolises and a high speed rail network and the standard of living that brought that country really out of quite extreme poverty in a really kind of short space of time. So that culture is just like technology is great. Give us more. And that was really remarkable to me, especially like in Singapore, just the way they were not the same sort of, I mean, there were some questions about sort of risk and peril, but people on the whole were a lot more optimistic about this technology. And as a consequence, Sam, like people were mobbing him for selfies. You know, he really packed a room. It was really fascinating. You know, I think that it's interesting. You mentioned the blow up at OpenAI that we saw recently and then the blow back together. I forget the elegant way you phrased it, but- I think that incident was actually really revealing about the role of big tech or, as you know, OpenAI was started with a very ambitious, but also a very idealistic mission. The OpenAI leadership team initially looked around at a tech landscape where they thought that there was a real danger of this technology being developed inside one of the tech giants who would be strictly focused on profit. And... As a consequence, they started OpenAI and said, let's be the ones, right, that develop artificial general intelligence, this kind of magical AI that can do almost everything. And let's do it inside our sort of nonprofit, and we won't be profit-motivated. Well, fast forward a few years later, even before ChatGPT, it becomes clear that to make real advances in this field now, you need tremendous amounts of computing power. And Computing power is expensive. It's like the most thought over commodity in the world right now, right? Who can get their hands on H-100s. And so as a consequence, they flip over to a totally different model, right? They start a for-profit model that is subservient to the nonprofit And they start to raise a lot of money, you know, uh, reportedly $13 billion from Microsoft. And as a consequence, even if you have this board structure in place, you have to ask, like, oh, wow, how much voting say does Microsoft really have? Well, as we found out in recent weeks, They didn't have much for a time. The board was able to fire Sam Altman over really perceptions that he was leading the company in such a way that they could not trust him and not just not trust him personally, but trust him with this mission that they seem to regard as quite holy of like bringing artificial general intelligence into the world in a way that's safe. The way that that gambit firing Sam Altman for that supposed infraction failed, which is something we should talk about. I think is really illustrative of where we're headed with this.
0: Yeah. Well, then yes, let's talk about it. Yeah, I thought that was such a helpful description and really was taken by your article. So many points in there. One line in particular, when you said Altman, in contrast, was built for a knife fight in the techno-capitalist mud. I mean, that is, first of all, such a fun sentence. (laughs) Second of all, if you think about these techno leaders who are yeah. becoming our international diplomats yeah. it's quite striking to think about how your perception was of him after spending mm-hmm. some significant time with him so yeah let, let's dig in on that.
1: yeah yeah and I don't mean to suggest that in his dealings with me that Altman was especially Machiavellian or anything like that it's just that when you look at his history right like this is someone who is the head of Y Combinator which mm-hmm. I think of it as kind of like Wharton or Stanford Business School for startups, right? This is someone who spent a lot of time thinking about what is the problem set you encounter when you scale a good idea to a huge company? His brain lived in that world for so long. And so when Chad GPT hits and he is this kind of tremendous success traveling the world, you know, the international face of AI. Yeah, you can imagine the temptations for him to grow the thing are immense and perhaps for good reason. But what's interesting to me is the way the board went about ousting him. First of all, I think they were pretty sloppy. I mean, that's why I sort of drew that contrast between the way the board sort of played the situation and Sam, because look, they fired him on a Friday night. They give this really ambiguous statement that only said that he hadn't been candid consistently, and that this had undermined their trust in him. At that point, with that level of detail, I mean, I'm sure you were kicking around this with friends that weekend, I mean, you know, anything from like an embezzlement scandal to a sex scandal seemed possible, right? It was like, what did this guy do? People talk about Steve Jobs being thrown out of Apple, like Apple was having performance issues at the time, right? OpenAI is not having performance issues. This is a weird thing to oust the CEO. So slowly, it sort of drips out in the reporting in the last few weeks that Helen Toner, who is on the board, who is an academic, who's very concerned, and rightly so, with the risks that may emerge from the development of AI and wants that process to be safe, that she had published this paper that had been critical of the way that OpenAI was operating relative to its competitor, Anthropic, which... Of course, there's a lot of, you know, there's drama and subtext there because Anthropic basically was a split offering with an AI. So Sam confronts her in a board meeting and is like, hey, what's going on? You know, it's weird that you're on our board and you're publishing bad things about us, which is an argument I'm sympathetic to. And apparently then started sort of moving to having one-on-one conversations with other board members about ousting her from the board. And in the process of doing so, and look, We live in Washington. We know how these processes played out. Whenever you're building consensus, sometimes you exaggerate the enthusiasm for your plan on behalf of other parties, you know, like, oh, well, you know, Miriam wants to do it. You know, I wanna do it, let's go. But it turns out the reporting says that he was misrepresenting how enthusiastic some of the other board members were about ousting her and that they sort of compared notes at some point. And this was, tantamount to his insufficient candor, which is why they tossed him. But again, the way they went about it, doing it in a news dump, and then you got to think about who do you have to persuade to make that stick? You got to persuade Microsoft, right? They own 49% of the for-profit arm. They're writing your big checks. You've got to persuade the employee base. And I think the general public perceptions are going to feed into both of those, right? So maybe they're in the three spot. And they never put out a detailed statement. Altman and Greg Brockman, right, who is the president and the chairman of the board until he too was sort of ousted, controlled the messaging all that weekend, you know, doing like heart emojis on Twitter with all the employees. And finally on Monday morning, right, you have more than 700 of the 770 OpenAI employees have signed a petition. Saying that they want Sam back and won't work for anyone else, I just, I mean, it, the whole thing just seemed disastrously run to me. I think mm-hmm. there's that saying, right? If you're going to come at the king, you can't miss. One of the interesting dimensions of it to me that I ended up writing about for our magazine was Ilya Sutskever, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. is the chief scientist at OpenAI, and and really, I think the most brilliant. Technical mind of the initial founders and someone who I actually came to admire quite a bit when I spent time with him out there. And subsequently, I just thought he was sort of brilliant, you know, and really interesting to talk to and philosophical about what language models were doing and how something that is really just looking at the relationships between words could develop like a model of the entire world. I was found myself quite seduced by his arguments to that effect. But to me, he was the real linchpin because I don't think absent his support that Helen Toner would have been able to kind of recruit enough of the board to go along with this. And Sam had told me and showed me evidence that it was him who originally recruited Ilya. So I, I know they had a reasonably close relationship previously. My colleagues, Karen Howe and Charlie Warzel reported that Ilya had really taken a turn over the last few years, becoming increasingly worried about alignment scenarios and had even burned a misaligned AI and effigy at like a company retreat. So I, you know, He was on his own journey, clearly, but this is not Napoleon, you know, Elias Sutskiver. This is a pretty mild-mannered and interior scientist. And so I think the idea of him outlasting Altman and like a real bloody battle for control, not a good prospect to begin with. And then, again, the communication strategy the board pursued. And then by Monday morning... Ilya himself was one of those signatories to that letter. Like he reversed himself completely. And now it sounds like from what's trickled out, he finds himself sort of begging for his job kind of, you know, it's, just, it's a sad situation overall, I think for him, but I'm curious. The conversation that I'm most interested in is the Helen Toner mm-hmm. and Ilya conversation. Mm-hmm. What did she say? Actually, I feel bad sort of positioning her as a ringleader that hasn't been fully established by the reporting, but to the extent that at least this flowed from this incident about her. If indeed it was her, what did she say to Ilya that really convinced him that this was a good idea? I
0: thinking about what was the final straw, what was the trigger? Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Not to harp on this instance too much, I know we have so much to cover. But the other thing that was so fascinating to me is, you know, I've been doing this work for five yeah. years, and you have your people you talk AI with, and you have the people you talk about responsible AI with, and you talk about everything else in your life, parenting or, you know, history, world politics. And I can't find a bubble and I couldn't that weekend that wasn't impacted by the story of the open AI governance blow up and and continues to enthrall people. But it was striking to me that there was a weekend with so much happening Mm -hmm. where that was. And, and, you know, again, maybe that's my lens on the world. But I found it coming up everywhere from the most unlikely sources. People were riveted, fascinated, and I think captured by the significance of what was happening. Whether or not we'll ever know what that linchpin was seeing from you and your colleagues, good reporting. So maybe we will find out. But I'm also struck by the public awareness of how significant
1: this is. Mm, No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm sure your phone was melting, right? Like I know (laughs) mine was. And it was also melting for my editor. Like, hey, we need to write <laughs> something of like this right now. <laughs> so I was like, oh no. But no, you're right. Beyond the sort of chat GBT moment, right? Last, late November, and then trickling into early December, where I think the whole world's kind of imagination was captured by this new technology, which OpenAI has now sort of built this mythology that to them it was what they called a low-key research demo, right? But clearly really captured the imagination of the world. I think people becoming more and more interested in the subject over time, incrementally, but it hasn't crystallized into news moments. I mean, we think about this internally a lot, many times, but that one, that weekend, it was dominant. I mean, the curiosity over that was really intense yeah,
0: yeah, and global. But but those were some interesting conversations. So you do so much interesting reporting. I wanna make sure that we look at other areas that you've covered. One other example of a really interesting piece is your look at China. Hmm. You wrote, The article about the panopticon is already here, looking at some of the concerning practices regarding China's use of AI to exert control over its population, as well as its attempts to expand its reach and win in a quote AI arms race. So would love to hear, is your thinking from 2020 current? Should Mm -hmm. we adjust what our thinking and our learnings from that article, or do you think also the recent discussions between president biden and president Xi are encouraging how would you alter that article if at all to where we are now
1: Hmm. that's a good question yeah i would say that one thing that i feel perhaps differently about is at the time it was my feeling that and not to scatter blame but the feeling of a lot of the experts i talked to that China was maybe like six to 18 months behind the United States AI ecosystem in terms of its development. And I guess I would update on that now, especially since even internally to the US, Google appears to be at least a year behind OpenAI. And so it's my sense that the foundational models that are coming out of China are just not nearly as capable as the ones that OpenAI has, but that could change any moment. And, you know, one of the most interesting things about the open AI story to me is the leapfrogging of like a very small company over all these tech giants. I mean, there was some great reporting about Satya Nadella last December after Chat GPT came out, sort of raging around, being like, why do I even have a research department if Sam Altman's built this thing in his garage, basically? <laughs> and so yeah, I guess what I would say is that I feel less confident now about making strong statements about how far behind China is. I really don't know. And that that whole world of China and technology and China in particular has become even more opaque than it was then. I mean, it's a really hard place to report as you can appreciate. I'm not sure I can go back to there after that, after that piece, in terms of China's willingness and ability to use this technology to surveil its population. And, you know, that piece, a lot of it was about the notion that China would be a tech leader in the autocratic world. And that, As a consequence, they would be able to not just develop these really seamless countrywide surveillance systems, but also export them to other places around the world. You know, Venezuela, places in sub-Saharan Africa that maybe couldn't yet develop this technology on their own, but would be sort of delighted to buy a kind of bespoke off-the-shelf version from China And I have seen no evidence that the human rights situation has improved significantly or even at all in China. In fact, I think the pandemic controls seem to me to be evidence quite to the opposite. I found myself quite chilled by those unforgettable videos of people screaming in the towers of Shanghai under lockdown And so, yeah, I haven't updated at all on that. I think that if this technology proves quite useful as it already has shown to be in surveillance, I expect China to use it. And I don't see a lot of pushback on the ground just yet that would undermine that. As for China exporting it elsewhere, just don't know, you know? Sometimes I look back on that piece and think, it's my sense now that the Belt and Road and its impact has been a little bit overhyped and that my analysis in that piece maybe drew on that hype, you know, that China, like, Bought all this influence globally, you know, and was basically going to have these sort of client states, like kind of snapping into a sort of Cold War frame of view prematurely on China. That's not entirely clear to me a few years on, but, you know, I'm weirdly a bit of an AI nationalist. You know, I do think that, as you know, from being here in Washington and thinking about these issues, this is one of the rare sort of Venn diagram overlaps between the parties right now. The notion that I want the best of this technology to be developed in the United States and for that to be true for quite a long time. And so when it comes to things like the CHIPS Act, I think there's a balance to be struck. You know, a source was telling me that if you don't get the specifications just right, The way chip technology is moving, you can make it so that China can't buy, you know, chips for like smart thermostats and washers and dryers. And I don't want anything like that. I really don't want public opinion of the United States to be poisoned in China. You know, I I want to return to the 2010 world. I love China. I think it's great. Love the Chinese people and love the idea of American civilization and Chinese civilization being quite close and shared global leadership. Like I'm into all that. And so I don't want to strip their ability to make high-tech entirely. But given the way that they've treated our tech companies when they've gone there, I just think we do need to play hardball on the chips and that you know when it comes to the very best of the best.
0: Yeah, you wrote another very interesting piece, several interesting pieces we wanna cover, but in the interest of time, you wrote about foam scrolling. First of all, can you please tell our listeners about (laughs) what this is of which you speak and your perspective on how it should impact our view of AI hype currently?
1: Doom scrolling, yes. Well, as you will be aware, I think during the first Trump election, so like 2015 ish, as it became increasingly plausible that he might be elected, I think this term doom scrolling emerged among a certain subset of the kind of two online liberal electorate, where the idea was that you sort of like stay up late at night, I do this, and you're on Twitter, X, doom scrolling, like looking at terrible headlines about climate change, AI risk, you know, the possibility that Donald Trump could be president, et cetera, et cetera. And this last year, there was this weird couple of weeks where South Korea, this group of scientists had claimed that they had developed a room temperature semiconductor, which I will confess to you. I don't even understand the physics of it all that well, but the upshot is like, if you can do this, you can move energy around a lot easier. It'd be one of the key bricks on our way to like a techno utopia. And it was fascinating to see the fizz and people's enthusiasm on Twitter about this possibility and people following it almost like a really close sports game. And it reminded me of those initial weeks after ChatGPT came out, right? When everyone was kind of posting screenshots of like amazing stuff that they've done with this technology. My favorite will always be the how do you remove a peanut butter and jelly sandwich from a toaster with a knife, but done in the King James Bible style. I remember seeing that and being like, that would take my colleagues and I, who are words people the better part of a day to do something that was kind of like this tight, you know, and I did just like that. And so you had that same kind of techno utopian fervor that was operating on social media and in the many ways that AI could develop People think a lot about, obviously, about the speed at which it'll develop. And, you know, maybe it'll be just a slow stair step to something like an artificial general intelligence over the next 20 or 30 years. Or maybe there's this other scenario called a FOOM, which is you get one technological leap that then kind of daisy chains with others. And AI basically learns how to sort of develop itself even better. And that is supposed to go really fast. You can think of almost like a roadrunner, like foom. And so I coined this term foom scrolling for the, the idea that like people who are interested in tech and hoping and wishing, you know, for a technology that will solve all the world's problems being on Twitter and just kind of being the very opposite of doom scrolling.
0: It's so much fun to see the the joy that you bring into these very serious topics, as well as coining new terms. So thank you for that. (laughs) Well, I hate for this conversation to Mm -hmm. come to a close, but we have to be respectful of your time. So thinking about this hope of AI changing the world, hopefully good. The final question we ask every guest, and I look forward to hearing your answer, is if you had a magic wand. And you could have one wish to achieve responsible or an ethical AI future. What's the one thing that you would wish for
1: Hmm. for safety.
0: You get to pick what future you want to live in that is AI enhanced.
1: I'll give you my safety thing and I'll give you the product I want safety. I just want, and this is a very fancy term from the literature mechanistic interpretability, which just means I want us to have transparency into how these things work. For me, in reporting this huge OpenAI piece, that was the thing that kind of bothered me on all the risk frontiers. You know, some of them, I think, are really far-fetched. But nonetheless, they retained this kind of like 1% plausibility because of the black box problem, because we don't know exactly how these things are arriving at their really quite remarkable and marvelous answers. So... In the interest of time, I'll keep this answer and only this answer short. I would sleep easier on the safety front if I knew that the world's best AI minds knew what was actually happening inside these kind of wonderful machines that they're building. As for the product I want, I am really seduced by the magical AI tutor. The idea that we could be only a few years away from every person in the developing world having free or very cheap access to a machine that can explain step-by-step step any idea, concept, fact in the world at any kind of great level and was calibrated and got to know you as a learner, I get goosebumps thinking about that. Like, I think that's a really awesome future that appears to be maybe within reach. And so that's the thing I'm most excited about.
0: Well, we look forward to also seeing that product realized and hopefully your wish for the transparency as well. Ross, thank you so much for joining uh, us today. This has been so much experience.
1: fun. I'm always a party. <laughs> We'll have to do it again soon. i look
0: forward to it. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org. And www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible.